we're into the Advent season now. We begin to look forward to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you get the weekly email, you know that we are going to focus in on seeing that coming of Christ through the lens of the Old Testament. But I want to just begin by reminding you of a story from out of John chapter 5 in the life of Jesus. It was a, a man who had been disabled for 38 years. Day after day, he is confined to a mat by a pool that reportedly has healing powers, but only at certain times, and yet the man is unable, physically unable to get in the pool when those times come, and so he just lingers there in his inability to be healed. And then Jesus came, and Jesus spoke to him and said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And he did. He was healed. He takes up his mat, and he begins to walk, and if you know the story, as he begins to walk, he is confronted by priests, by Jewish religious leaders. And in that moment, that should be a moment of rejoicing. Their only question is, why are you carrying your mat around? It's the Sabbath, and that's against the law. You're not allowed to carry the, law, the, the mat on, uh, on the Sabbath. We should note that this man was probably not unknown in Jerusalem, that, that certainly some of these Jewish religious leaders would have known this man. And so this should have been a time when they were marveling, but instead concerned about adherence to their interpretation of what the law is on that. And so he explains to them, I've been healed. And the one who healed me said to pick up my mat and walk. So I'm doing what he told me to do. And so we should be rejoicing here. Instead, John 5, 16 says, they began persecuting Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. That is a stunning statement because what it says is they, they weren't arguing over the issue of whether he was healed. They, they, they knew what they had seen and that he had been healed. They were only concerned about the timing of it. How dare you do this on the Sabbath? And in responding to them, Jesus said several things, but among them, John 5, 39 and 40, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see the rebuke, he's speaking to scribes, to Pharisees, to priests, to those who, who search the law, who, who study the scriptures. And he's saying, you, you do all this diligent study, and yet somehow you've missed the fact that the scriptures, the, the Old Testament as they knew it, as we would call it, reveal me. It, it's me who you see being shown in the pages of your scriptures, and yet you reject that. After his resurrection, he says much the same thing to the two that he is walking with on the road to Emmaus. And then in Luke 24, 44, to his own disciples, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus Christ told his followers that the Old Testament was about him. That the scriptures that the, the, the Jews were looking in for news about the coming of the Savior was revealing Jesus. It was pointing to him. Nearly a century ago, B.B. Warfield was a professor of theology and was president of Princeton Seminary at the time. It seems hard to even fathom Princeton Seminary as being language that we would think of anymore. But Warfield said this, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before. It's a great description. 
Jesus Christ is that light. His, his coming brings the, the, this light into the world and illuminates truths that were already proclaimed about him in the Hebrew scriptures. They were already there, though dimly lit. His coming now brings them to, to the forefront. And so within the Old Testament, there is this forward-looking hope for a Savior. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, in particular Genesis 3.15, but if you want to turn to Genesis 3, we're going to start there. Paul used the term in Acts chapter 28, the hope of Israel, as he's talking about Jesus. That's not a new term. Jeremiah uses it a couple of times, speaking of the hope of Israel. Ultimately, this Advent season, we are looking to that which brings hope. That is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do throughout Advent is just trace that, that hope in the Old Testament, starting with the birth of hope here in Genesis, and then the, the maturation of that hope into a kingly hope. Ultimately, we'll see the glorious proclamation of this hope in the Psalms, and that's going to be our plan for the next three Sundays as they lead us up to Christmas Eve. This morning, hope's birth. The, the start of this anticipation in Genesis chapter 3, it is a verse that is commonly referred to as the first gospel. Uh, theologians would say the proto-evangelium, the, the idea of that which is being proclaimed, the gospel, the good news, and the first proclamation of it. So if we set the scene, end of Genesis chapter 1, God has created the heavens and the earth and man, and it says at the end of Genesis 1 that God says all is very good. He, he deems it very good. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, we have a man and a woman. They are in the Garden of Eden. They are dwelling together in sinless harmony. There is no uh, guilt. There is no shame. All seems to be right as this couple is experiencing what is a taste of paradise for them and not knowing sin. All seemed well, but God's creation at that point was already not perfect. At some point between the creation account in Genesis 1 and the start of Genesis 3, there is a rebellion against God in the heavens amongst the angels. And we find that out in the book of Revelation. The first rebellion starts as it's recorded. Revelation 12, 9 says, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That is describing God's judgment on a rebellious group of angels, apparently led by this one in particular. Luke, uh, Jesus also seems to have this in view in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, when he says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. As Revelation 12, 9 says, there are angels who are with Satan. If we back up in Revelation 12, verse 4, seems to indicate up to about a third of, of the angelic beings are cast down in this judgment of God and in part of this rebellion and are cast out of heaven. And so begins the demonic host that remains active to this day. That explains the dramatic shift from the end of Genesis 2 to the beginning of Genesis 3. At the end of 2... We are in the Garden of Eden, all is well. Two human beings are experiencing the most intimate, perfect relationship on this side of eternity. They are having fellowship with God. Genesis 3 indicates that God would enter the garden and walk in the cool of the day, and so there is communion with God. And then you come to the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, and we are introduced to this serpent who is said to be more crafty and more cunning than any other beast of the field. And when the serpent speaks, the first thing he says is designed to incite rebellion. He is bringing evil into the world, and he is enticing 
Eve and, and bringing about then the temptation to the fall. Pride was behind Satan's rebellion against God. His punishment obviously did not rehabilitate him being cast down to the earth. On the contrary, he says to Eve, that which is meant to kindle pride within her, that which is meant to create this sense of arrogance. And the first thing he tries to convince her of is this God who made you is some kind of onerous overlord. Because after all, has he said to you that you cannot eat of the fruit of the trees in this garden? What a terrible thing that God would, would limit you in that way. And, and of course, he's lying at that point. God said there was one fruit, one tree from the fruit of which was forbidden. But Satan turns that into saying he's, he's stopped you from any of this. And so Eve corrects him. She's partly right, partly wrong in her correction. But the thing she does seem to understand is that what God had promised was that there would be a penalty uh, from eating of the one tree in particular, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that penalty would be death. To which the serpent replies in Genesis 3, verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the temptation. The good God who put Adam and Eve in this glorious environment who made them and called it all very good is now being called a liar. He said, you will die. No, you will not. That, that's not true. And in fact, he's now saying that the, the, the temptation is that he simply doesn't want you to eat from the tree because then you're going to know too much. He simply wants to keep you under his thumb and he doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so if you do that, your eyes will be opened. The very arrogance that existed among that angelic being and, and his company in heaven that said, look at us, look at God. We don't see much difference. We, we must be just like him. He must be just like us. We are gods then too. That same arrogance now has made its way into the heart of man. It's now the, the heart of the temptation that incites Adam and Eve to sin. When we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're simply talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. The New Testament speaks of it as the euangelion, the good news. We get our word evangelist from that. An evangelist is someone who proclaims the good news, the evangel. But good news is really hard to appreciate if, in fact, you don't comprehend or understand the bad news. For instance... We appreciate good health because we understand what sickness and death are. It's only because we actually see sickness and death that we understand what it's like to be healthy, to, to not be experiencing those things. And so we need the bad news in order to understand the good. Otherwise, we wouldn't know the difference. And the opening verses of Genesis chapter 3 are filled with bad news that really leaves two possible outcomes. Either things get worse, far worse, or there must be some good news. There must be something that provides redemption, rescue from this. The worst news would be had God simply been done with his creation at that point. Had, had the stain of sin now marred all that he made being very good, God would have been within his right to say that is the end, bringing death upon Adam and Eve, bringing death upon creation, and simply ending it all. But instead, as we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3, there is good news because there is still hope for redemption. Good news that was 
was already in place long before that moment. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that, that God had already established a plan for redemption. Long before God ever said, let there be in the creation account in Genesis 1, there is already a plan to redeem sinners. Jesus echoed something similar as he's praying for his disciples in John 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, there is already not only intimacy and perfect love within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, but God's design is in place to rescue sinners so that they too can experience that communion, that fellowship with their creator. John uses similar language in the book of Revelation, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 8, and he says, speaking of everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. God's eternal plan was to save a people on the basis of a lamb who was slain. So not only is there a plan to rescue, but there is already the eternal decree that the sacrifice necessary to rescue people has already been committed to. The lamb will be sacrificed in order to pay the price for sinners. And this is before the foundation of the world. This is before creation. And so God does not bring an end to all of creation in Genesis chapter 3. Instead, he is moving toward this plan set in eternity past to rescue a people. But before we get ahead to the good news, we still need to understand the fullness of the bad news. Back in Genesis 3 for Adam and Eve, when they sinned, their eyes were now open to evil. And they immediately experienced two emotions, two feelings that they had not previously. First being shame. We see them immediately being, having this awareness that they are now laid bare before each other. And more importantly, they are now laid bare before God. God sees what they have done and who they are and sees them in their sin. And so not only is there shame, but there's this new feeling of fear. For the first time, they're, they're hiding. When God comes to walk with them in the cool of the day, they are trying to hide from his presence. They are guilty. And their, their sweet fellowship with their creator is now marred by sin. And so the reality of the bad news is just beginning to hit them. God had warned that in the day they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. At that moment, they are still living and breathing. But they are about to be excommunicated from this garden, from this garden of Eden. They're about to be sent away and no longer able to partake of the tree of life, that which preserves them, that which continues to allow them to experience immortality. As now fallen creatures, they begin to experience pain. They begin to experience what we all know so well, the consequences of the fall, and that is that our bodies grow older and they begin to decay and have problems and we move toward death. And in that moment, that happened for them as they began to know the suffering that would ultimately lead to death. There's more consequences, verses 16 to 19 spell out more consequences for the sin of the man and the woman and the curses they would experience, but I want to focus in on verses 14 and then primarily 15 this morning. The woman 
has just pointed at the serpent. We, we know the scene after the sin, God comes, Adam blames Eve, tries to blame Eve, the woman you gave me, she gave me this to eat. The woman says, the serpent, he gave it to me, it's the serpent's fault, and so God begins to curse and he speaks first to the serpent. Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Key words in that, because you have done this. There's nothing arbitrary about God's ju judgment at this point. The serpent now receives the consequences of the serpent's actions. And the punishment actually turns out to be kind of an ironic twist. At the start of chapter three, it says that the serpent is more cunning, more crafty. There's something about the serpent that compared to all of the other creatures makes the serpent sort of unique and sort of standing out from the rest. And it is now cursed to an existence where it will be marked by being more humiliated than the others and crawling on its belly. And the serpent who enticed Eve to eat of the tree, it says now part of his curse is he will eat of the dust. And, and so it's just a dramatic shift in that this, this animal that once was considered cunning and crafty and somehow appealing is now an unclean animal subjugated to a humble experience henceforth. And then verse 15, I will put enmity, he's speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Four elements that I just want us to think about in, in Genesis 3.15 this morning. First is this issue of identification. The serpent, and particularly the seed of the woman, understanding who they are, what's being identified here. Secondly, the ongoing hostility that God promised that would be the result of this sin. There would be this ongoing enmity. And then the bruising of the offspring's heel that he promises. And finally, we'll look at the bruising of the serpent's head. So let's start with the identification issue. This is really one of the most discussed parts of Genesis 3.15. He starts and says, you and the woman, the woman we know is Eve. We take the serpent's identity. If, if you've grown up in the church and been in Sunday school, you, you just automatically take the serpent's identity to be Satan. Let's just do that from scripture. We really get that from a part of what we read earlier. We read from Revelation 12.9, but the full verse says this, and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That description of that ancient serpent is John clearly looking back to the garden experience. He uses the same language in Revelation 20, verse two. And so Eve may not have understood the, the full nature of what she was facing in the serpent on that day, but it is clear from scripture that it is Satan himself who either takes the form of a serpent or speaks through the serpent, but it is Satan who is behind all of this. And the enmity God spoke of was not only to be experienced by Satan and Eve, it is their offspring. And that's where this greater question of identity comes in. When it says the, the offspring of you and the offspring of the woman, Hebrew words common means seed or offspring. Word can actually be used in two different ways, the same word in the Hebrew language, either to speak of a, a singular offspring, a descendant, if you will, or a collective group of offspring. And so when God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 13, 16, and he promises to Abraham, I will make your offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. He's 
talking about the collection of, of offspring. He's talking about a larger collective group of Abraham's descendants. In Genesis 21, he's speaking about Ishmael, and he says, he is your offspring to Abraham, and there it's an individual. The seed of Satan is, is essentially not only Satan, but all who are aligned with him in rebellion against God. Those who remain enemies of God and who will not bow the knee to him. And, and we get a glimpse of this when Jesus is speaking against the hostility of the scribes and Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. It's a vivid picture. You are offspring of Satan. You are doing what, what Satan would have you do because you are acting as those who are descendants of his. Now, concerning the women, the, the woman's offspring, there's two things that, that help us to, to think about this. One is those who've done a lot of study of, of the Hebrew language and who have studied the Old Testament use of, of the word for offspring, the Hebrew word for offspring, found that when a specific particular individual descendant, not a collective group, but when a specific descendant is in mind, the pronouns and the adjectives around it are masculine. Um, and, and so we see that here when it says he in verse 15. So we have her offspring, and then it immediately says he shall bruise your head. When the Greek translators of the Hebrew Old Testament when they translated it, they also used the singular masculine pronoun. That's the document we call the Septuagint. This is three centuries, almost three centuries total before the time of Christ. And they also say, he, in terms of this offspring, he shall bruise your head. The point being that even 300 years before Christ, there is still amongst the Jews an understanding from this passage that they are expecting a male child to be born at some point. Someone who will be the offspring in this line who will bruise the head of Satan. There is a, a chosen one who is coming. And so ultimately when we talk about the seed of the woman, we are talking about Jesus Christ, the expectation of the Messiah. But again, in, in keeping with the word, I, I don't think that completely rules out the collective sense either of the, women, of the woman's offspring in that Romans 6 teaches us that we who are believers in Jesus Christ are in Christ, right? We are, we are with him in a way that we can't fully grasp, and yet we are joined to him in his death and in his resurrection. And so there is a sense in which even here in Genesis 3, when we see this, this victory that we'll read about, we are in Christ. We participate in him in that way. But again, before we get ahead to the good news... Not done just yet with the bad news. Genesis 3.15 says that part of this curse is enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. There is ongoing hostility between Satan and the woman and between their offspring. Talk to unbelievers about the devil and those conversations can often easily get off the rails but what we find more often than not is the idea of a personal, powerful, spiritual being is not what the world has in mind. Ah, uh, yeah, there's evil out there, there's forces of evil, there's bad vibes is kind of what we're likely to hear in 2023. It's those bad vibes. What scripture describes to us is there is an actual supernatural evil opponent in, in, in Satan, that he is real and that Satan 
hates people. He hates those who are made in the image of God. He hates unborn babies. He hates elderly, frail people who are nearing the end of their lives. And he hates everyone in between. His agenda is destruction. He's not out to entice you into, and that he's not going to fulfill this to give you your best life now, as, as, as might be said. He, he's not here to do that. What he's here to do is to deceive you into destruction. That is his agenda. And that's why Jesus said the thief comes only to rob, kill, and destroy. To steal, kill, and destroy. And, and, and that's Satan's agenda. So if you, if you somehow have imagined that the best way of going through life for me is to ignore the idea of God, to ignore any law of God, to ignore any will of God, and just do what I want and do as I please. Let me break this to you. You are being dragged by an enemy who wants to kill you. He wants the worst for you, and he will package it in things that look pleasurable and enticing and temptations that, that seem in a fleeting way, to be wonderful, but in the end, it is destruction, shame and endless destruction. The devil wants your life to be marked by bitterness, by arrogance, by violence, selfishness, struggle, and he wants your soul to spend eternity tortured by hatred and anger and in a never-ending experience of death. Satan's real. Satan has an insatiable hostility toward all who are made in the image of God. And if you doubt that, just read on in Genesis. We get to Genesis chapter four, and we got this happy little family, Adam and Eve, two sons, and what do we see happen in Genesis chapter four? Murder. The, the older son becomes jealous of God's blessing on the younger son, and even though God specifically warns him, he still lashes out, and he kills his brother in anger. Genesis 5 gives us um, just genealogies following the, the line of, Ad, uh, of Adam and Adam's sons. But then you come to Genesis chapter 6, and what do you see again? Evil is multiplying across the earth. As, as the earth is multiplying, human beings are, are multiplying, so is evil. And Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There is ongoing hostility. There is a, an, an enemy who wants to provoke this at every possible opportunity. And so even though God then pronounces judgment on the world through a flood, if we fast forward a few generations, we're in Genesis chapter 11, and what does humanity do? Gathers on a plane and says, we're going to build a tower that is going to make us just like God. We're going to build a tower to the heavens and, and, and demonstrate again our fundamental sinful nature that says we can be like him. We can rival him. And God scatters them at that point. They believe the serpent's lie that they could be like God. And so it goes from there. Despite God's merciful judgments and warnings and punishments, the depravity of man encouraged by the lies and the supernatural power of Satan and his demons breeds generation after generation of hatred and lust and lies and oppression and murder. It is endless hostility. But that's not the end of the story. Praise God. That's, that's not how it progresses to its end. Genesis 3.15 holds the promise. He shall bruise your head. He, that is referring to the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, serpent, 
and you shall bruise his heel. Same Hebrew word for bruise in both places. That's an accurate translation. So it's not one crushing and one bruising as we sometimes um, take that to be. The, the difference ultimately is in the location of the injury. It's where the point of attack is. That's what ultimately tells us that this battle will be settled once and for all. There will be a victorious side in this. And, and so let's take the last part first, which is that Satan, the serpent, shall bruise the heel of the woman's offspring. Sometimes I think in our eagerness to get to the, the good news in this of what the woman's seed does to the serpent, we sort of miss the reality of what the promise is here of the serpent's attack on the woman's offspring. It is painful and it is bloody. We ought not minimize when it says that the serpent would attack at the heel that Satan, who does not work outside of boundaries established by God, still causes suffering. And those promises would extend to God's people too. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 exhorts believers to put on the full armor of God so that you may stand against Satan and against his evil forces of darkness and against his scheming because he is warring against Christ and his people. He is, as it were, painfully striking against heels. Obviously, chiefly, Genesis 3.15 has one particular attack in view. It is the destruction of the Messiah. It is, the, it, it is Satan's efforts to kill the Messiah. You go back to the Christmas story and we think of the, the baby boys in Bethlehem and Herod's launching a murderous attack on them. That is Satan wanting to destroy the Messiah. You go to the temptation that Satan puts before Jesus and he says, just throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the, the temple and, and, and God will take care of you. Ultimately, we see Jesus at the, the synagogue in Nazareth, his, his boyhood town, and he is proclaiming the word there. And Satan incites such anger amongst the people that a crowd actually gathers him and takes him to the edge of town to a cliff where they are going to throw him off to kill him. And Jesus, it says, slips away and, and disappears from them. Ultimately, Satan incited the Jewish religious leaders to conspire in the most evil of ways to arrest Jesus in the, the middle of the night during religious celebration while most people are in their homes, to rush Jesus through this farcical trial where there can be nothing that demonstrates any evidence of anything that he has done wrong, to ultimately bringing him out before a crowd the next day that is whipped up in a frenzy so that even when the Roman governor says, I find no guilt in this man. This is an innocent man, and instead what I'll do is I'll free him, and I'll give you this notorious criminal to execute if that will somehow satisfy your bloodlust, and what do the people cry out? No, free Barabbas, kill Jesus. We want him crucified. That, that's what Genesis 3.15 is looking forward to, and Satan and his forces in that moment could not have been more pleased. Uh, the serpent violently struck at the heel of the offspring. And so as Roman soldiers are beating Jesus and mocking Jesus and whipping Jesus and spitting on him and then nailing him to a cross for execution, the serpent's attack seemed, seemed disastrous. He strikes the heel, he bruises the heel. But you and I know Satan could not thwart what was happening on that cross. Genesis 3.15 also says to us that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Bruising a heel hurts. 
Anybody that's had a foot injury knows that that, that hurts. It can be crippling and, and, and it can make things very difficult. But if that foot turns and stomps on the serpent's head, that outcome is decidedly different. And that's what's happening at the cross. The offspring would be vindicated. In Luke 24, I alluded to it earlier, Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. He is appearing with these two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus, two of his followers. They are grieving because as far as they know, Jesus is dead. In their grief, they are not seeing that this is Jesus walking with them. They're simply bemoaning the events of the weekend. They do not believe in the resurrection. And they believe that this Messiah is not the Messiah after all. And Jesus says to them in Luke 24, 25, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's saying, don't you see? The awful suffering of an ignominious public execution on a Roman cross was not what you're thinking it was. It was not Satan's victory in that moment. In that moment, when Jesus Christ on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was reflecting what we know to be the theological truth that the father turned his back on the son so that the son might experience the father's wrath and, and the judgment for our sin. In that moment, to an onlooker, it might have looked like, like Jesus was done. Even God had forsaken him and he was acknowledging it. And here is Jesus saying, don't you see? That was necessary. That what was happening in that moment, that was not, that was not Satan somehow winning. On the contrary, Jesus Christ then is raised from the grave to enter into glory because on the cross, Jesus is crushing the power of sin and death. He is defeating, he is bruising the head of Satan to the point that sin and death and its power are now being crushed. Jesus bruised Satan's head. Now listen, for a time, Satan still roams, still tempts, still incites, still active, still spreading evil. But I think the words of Martin Luther might say it best in the great hymn when he says, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. Amen. Amen. The seed of the woman delivered a blow to the serpent that will ultimately bring an end to all of the hostility. Jesus is the victor. Don't you see, he says, oh foolish ones, this was necessary that the Christ must die and then enter into glory. And the wonder, brethren, of his victory, if you are with me and trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, is we who are in Christ share in that victory. In that defeat uh, by, the, by the, the offspring of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. At his incarnation, Jesus Christ humbles himself to the point of death on the cross, that he might be glorified by his Father. Listen to Hebrews 2.10. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He's describing the Messiah there. The Messiah is fully God. And so in his divine nature, he is perfect. And being born now as God had promised, 
seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, he will be born a man, so he will be also fully human. This offspring, in his perfect obedience to the will of the Father, also demonstrates a perfect human nature as well. And what it says here is he would achieve this victorious glory in bringing many sons, many seed, many offspring to glory. That's, that's you and I who are trusting in Christ. That Jesus Christ, through his suffering in the flesh, experiences that which now makes us to be who are trusting in Christ, those offspring. If you are trusting in Jesus, you are united in his death and his resurrection, and you share in the fruit of this victory, and there is coming a day, ultimately, when Satan will be banished, and sin and suffering will end, and the consequences of the fall will all be reversed, and we will experience sweet fellowship, perfect communion in paradise forevermore with the seed of the woman, with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our hope. Listen, if that is not your hope this morning, can I just appeal to you that all of history, from eternity past until now, has been under the governance of a very kind and gracious creator who is also just. And, and, and this creator has provided for you a means of salvation, a means of rescue from the curse of Genesis 3. And that means is Jesus Christ. Jesus did everything on the cross that you and I can't do. He had obeyed his Father's will perfectly. He died as a sinless sacrifice. And then in his resurrection, he demonstrates that that is the acceptable sacrifice, that he has satisfied the justice of God. And so this morning, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, may I, may I appeal to you and say, today can be the day of salvation. It's, it's not up to what you do. It's not up to you trying to work and try to earn. It is ultimately... If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yeah. Right where you are, whether you're watching online or you're here, you can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a grateful, glad people because of the promise of the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. We thank you that this was not a, a backup plan, that this was your design for all of eternity to rescue a people through your son, Jesus Christ, through the lamb who would be slain. And Lord, we thank you that those who are trusting in Christ, we, we are found to be in him, that it's not our righteousness, it's not our good standing, it's not our works that have placed us there, but it is his finished work applied to our lives that now enables us to stand forgiven with life, with hope, Lord, thank you. And I pray for anyone listening this morning who is pondering these things, maybe for the first time. Lord, would you today, would your spirit bring illumination to their minds, cause them to see these truths fresh and new, and to see that the, the reality of sin because of what Adam and Eve did, that has fallen on all of us. We have all from that moment on inherited a nature that is in rebellion against you. None are better than another. Lord, we all are sinners. And that, therefore, is why we need the seed of the woman, why we need Jesus Christ, the one sinless one who gave his life as a ransom. And I pray that today you might bring, as the result of your word, that you might bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, to trust him as Savior. Lord, thank you as we move through the rest of this 
busy season over these coming weeks. Help us not to lose sight of the fact that even though the attacks to the heel are real and there is suffering and there is difficulty and temptations and hardship, that we belong to a risen, conquering Savior. And that is our hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen.